The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Matthew. Happy New Year, everybody. If you uh, were one of those who came in a little bit late for the service, you might have noticed uh, if you've been around here for a while that we had uh, a guest uh, musician this morning. His name is Jacob Tilton. He's the guy that be- was behind the piano. Uh, for the months of uh, January and February, we're going to be bringing in several guests just to, to learn uh, from what others are doing out there in their context. Jacob comes to us this week from uh, Fort Worth Presbyterian in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where he's the, the minister of music there. And uh, wherever you are, Jacob, if you're in here, thank you so much for leading us. Uh, and, uh, and now we get to continue our, our series in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, just by way of summary, there's an issue in this church. This is a church that's got issues. And uh, Paul, who's the writer of the letter, is upset to say the least because a group of uh, what he calls false teachers have come into this church and they've started spreading a bad idea. And the idea is this, the pressure is on to get yourself right with God. Pressure is on to get yourself right with God. Bad idea. That's what this whole letter is about. Paul calls this group of false teachers the the circumcision group, and what they're teaching is this. All you need in order to get yourself right with God is Jesus plus Jewishness. Jesus plus, plus Jewishness. You need to assimilate into Jewish culture and and adopt the Jewish calendar, Jewish dietary practices, uh, the Jewish way of, of doing things. And then the second feature of that is you've got to abide by the Old Testament law of Moses in its entirety. That's what you've got to do to 
get yourself right with God or to be justified, as the New Testament language says. Now, now there's a concern here uh, right off the bat, and uh, I like, appreciate how my predecessor here, Christ Prez, uh, Ray Ortland, puts it. He says, the problem is that obedience to the law of Moses can't justify because obedience doesn't exist. It can't justify because it doesn't exist. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 10, this is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote this. He said, whoever keeps the whole law of God but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you, if you stumble just once, it's as if you've bra- broken the whole thing. That's how high uh, the bar is <clears throat> with God. So, um, so I'll put it in an illustration. Imagine there are two people that are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and one of them is, let's say, a four-year-old boy named Jake. And let's say the other is Bob Beeman, who is the world record holder for the long jump. And both of them have been given a command, and it's a very simple command. Jump all the way across the Grand Canyon. Jump all the way across the Grand Canyon and your life will be saved. And, of course, the young boy, he has no chance, but Bob Beeman, world record holder in in long jump, how hard can it be? Well, the outcome of this effort to obey this command is going to be the same for both of these individuals. They will both be at the bottom of the Grand Canyon at the end of the exercise because Bob Beeman's longest jump ever was 24 feet and the Grand Canyon is 18 miles wide. I'd like to introduce you to the law of God. You can't do it. There's no chance. You have no chance. No matter how virtuous you are, no matter how cleaned up your act, no chance. If you think that it's on you to get you right with God. So today what we're going to talk about is what came to Abraham. And it's the gift of salvation, what Paul calls salvation by promise. Not by jumping far, not by doing your very best, but salvation by promise. And the central message there is that you've got nothing to add to what Jesus has already done on your behalf. That's the gospel message. And and the question that he asks in the center of all that in verse 19 is, well, why then the law? Why did God give the law if the law isn't even necessary as part of getting right with God? And so we'll talk about that in three categories. The first uh, is the law as a sidebar to the salvation plan of God. And the second is the law as a smelling salt that awakens us to our need. And finally, the law as a fruit of the promise that saves. And so let's start with the first, the law of God or the law of Moses especially as a sidebar to the salvation plan of God. So here's a, here's a short, <coughs> short history lesson. Verse 16 says that the law of Moses came, was written 430 years after 
Abraham. 430 years after Abraham was when the law of Moses was first introduced, which is proof positive that that Abraham, who's the father of all those who know God, he's the father of all who have true faith, it's proof positive that the, the law is so remotely away from the center of the equation of what gets a person right with God. You know, God gives Abraham two specific promises in the 15th chapter of Genesis. The, promise, the first promise is that God is going to give property or, or a land flowing with milk and honey to Abraham and his descendants. And the short-term fulfillment of that promise would be uh, when God gave the land of Canaan to, to Abraham and his his immediate and extended family. The ultimate long-term fulfillment of that promise is the new heaven and the new earth, which we read about in Revelation chapter 21. The second promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is is what he calls a seed uh, or offspring, a son, a child. And the short-term fulfillment there is Isaac, the young man Isaac, who was born uh, when Abraham was 100 years old after Sarah had spent decades unable to conceive a child. And so, so they name him Isaac. And, and what's funny about that name is it's a funny name. The Isaac means laughter. It means he laughs. They, they, were, they, were, they just thought it was laughable what God had done. It was so funny. 100 years old, first child. The ultimate promise was not just Isaac, but, but that there would be, according to God, so many descendants of Abraham, that they would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashores and as numerous as the stars in the sky. Countless descendants. And Abraham, you know, to this audacious promise, before it's, any of it's fulfilled, he says to God, well, how, how, how will I know? How can I know that, that I'm hearing the voice of God and this is all going to come true? I'm getting old. I've got no property. I've got no kids. And the answer that God brings to him is this in a dream. I want you to bring me a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. And I want you to cut those animals in two, and I want there to be blood on the ground. And I want you to take the, 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 the parts of those animals, and I want you to spread them. Create a corridor between the parts of those animals that, 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 that's covered with blood. And that sounds weird, right? Until... We understand the original context. This was how they signed a contract in those days. It was like signing in blood, where each party in an agreement would pass between or walk down that corridor of blood between the animal parts. And it was a very graphic, symbolic way of saying, if I break my part of this agreement, may I become like these animals. May I become cut up and cut off. It's a strong way of saying my word is my bond. I'm going to keep my end of the the contract here. And it says that Abraham fell into a deep sleep, though, before he had a chance to (coughs) walk through these pieces. He falls into a deep sleep, and it says that a smoking fire pot, which to, to the Jewish reader would conjure images of God leading Israel through the desert because in the day he appeared to, des- to, to, to the people of Israel as a cloud or a pillar of cloud or smoke. And at night he, he would appear to the people of Israel as a pillar of fire. And there's this smoking, cloudy fire pot, it says, that alone passes through the pieces. 
This is God saying to Abraham, I will fulfill my part and I will fulfill your part of getting my promises fulfilled. It's all on me. I'm 100% active. You're 100% passive. Salvation is done by me to you. That's what God's saying to Abraham and to anybody else who wants to have faith like Abraham, who wants to belong. The pressure's off, not the pressure's on. The message here (coughs) is quite clear. God will be true. God will be true. There's nothing that you need to do to make it happen, and there's nothing that you can do to stop it from happening if God's made a promise. He will do his part, and he will also do your part. In verse 15, Paul says, even with a man-made covenant, he's talking about legal contracts here, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So think of a, think of a will. So say there's this really wealthy widow, and she's got two daughters, and she, um, she stipulates in her will or in her trust that her two daughters will split her estate equally. They'll both get the same amount. Millions, both of them. And uh, the woman dies, and daughter number one, she's the daughter that everybody, that everybody's heart just is affectionate towards. She's trustworthy, she's kind, she's a hard worker, she's generous, she's faithful in her church community, faithful in her you know, civic life. And she's a single mom of three. She, she really needs support as well. And the reason she is a single mom of three is because of her sister who had an affair with her husband and took her away and is now with her husband. And not apologetic, no remorse. This is the way it is. Like Woody Allen once said, the heart wants what the heart wants. And we look at this and we think that the two are getting an equal inheritance after after all this has happened. But you can't undo a will. You can't undo a trust. You can't make it say what it doesn't say. You can't unmake it say what it does say. You just have to follow through with it. Even if we are faithful, (coughs) 2 Timothy says, God will remain, or I'm sorry, even if we are faithless, God will remain faithful because God cannot disown himself. God cannot go back on his own promises. That's why the Bible is full of people who mess up, who screw up, who make catastrophic decisions, who do terrible things to other people, and yet they remain secure in the love of God. Peter betraying Jesus Christ three times as Jesus is headed to the cross. For example, Rahab, a a prostitute. David committing adultery and murder. None of these things jeopardize their standing with God. All of these things jeopardize their their present time intimacy and, and connection and assurance with God, but none of these things jeopardize their position with God who had made promises to them and had made covenant with them as, as he had with Abraham. We look at, you know, the, the two sisters 
story, or we look at <coughs> we look at teaching like this, and we say, "Well, we say, well, no fair, no fair," because I mean, let's let's be honest. What this means is that that good people can be dismissed by God, and bad people can be received by Him. That's not fair. Remember what what Ray Ortland said, obedience unto salvation is a problem because obedience doesn't exist. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. It doesn't exist. I don't care if you're the Pope. I don't care if you're Tim Keller. It doesn't exist. No fair. That's precisely the point. And thank God, because nobody wants fair from God. I assure you, nobody wants fair from God. Because fair puts us in the same place as the world record holder for the long jump at the edge of the Grand Canyon being told, jump across the thing. Puts us in the same place. We're sunk. Romans 3 says it this way, and he's echoing the 14th and 53rd Psalm, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have become corrupt. There's no one righteous. There's no one good in the way that God defines good. You know, the great awakening (coughs) evangelist George Whitfield put it this way. You must be brought to see that God may damn you for the best prayer that you ever pray. Our best duties are so many splendid sins. Your self-righteousness is the last idol that has to be taken out of the heart. What is self-righteousness? It's the notion that I contribute even a smidge to my standing with God. And Jesus says this to religious people. I mean, Take it from Jesus' mouth. He, he says this to committed religious people. It's a paraphrase, but he's telling this to people all the time. You are going to be damned, not for your immorality, but for your piety. It's another way of saying that some people go to church, read the Bible, say prayers, get religious. Not to get close to Jesus, but to avoid him. Because the more virtuous and pious I can be, the less I have to think about how much of a wreck I am in need of the grace of God. See how it works? I mean, Flannery O'Connor has this line in Wise Blood where, where, where she's speaking of one of the you know, smug, self-righteous characters in there. And she said that, that, that this character, he knew that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Was to avoid the... the the idea that that he actually needed Jesus because of sin. You can avoid Jesus through religion. See how crazy it is? See how tricky the heart can be? This is why Jesus was saying to religious leaders even, people in my position, prostitutes, they're getting into the kingdom of God at a faster pace than people like you. Prostitutes, greater than church people. Broken, tired of their lives. Prostitutes, closer to God 
than pastors in some cases. So the law is a sidebar to the salvation plan of God. It's also a smelling salt. What's, what, what's the use of the law? What's the answer to Paul's question, why then the law? It's a smelling salt that awakens us to our need. He says in verse 19, <coughs> the law of 430, 430 years after Abraham, the law of Moses was added. It's just a supplement. It's like a condiment. It's like ketchup or barbecue sauce or mustard or something. You don't need it to get the sustenance. It was added. It's an additive because of transgressions by means of an intermediary. The intermediary was Moses in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The way that Paul's describing the law here is that the law of Moses, it's like a strict babysitter. You ever been in that situation, kids, students, where you're excited that mom and dad are going to be out for the evening, babysitter's going to come, and it's going to be so fun, and you're going to be able to get away with some things, and the babysitter's ten times more strict than mom and dad. I want mom and dad back. Or, or, or students, you ever had a substitute teacher, and you thought, hey, we'll be able to get away with the rules, probably not going to have homework, and that substitute teacher is mean as a snake. We want our teacher back. See, the strict babysitter, the substitute teacher, the law of Moses, exasperating. It's always correcting, always finding fault, always putting people in time out. Romans 3.20 says this, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious, we become aware, we become awakened to the reality of sin. <clears throat> so, for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to tell you about the three different expressions of the law of God in the writings of Moses. And I want to ask you to feel the gravity of the impossibility and the exasperation of all three as I present them to you. The first was the ceremonial law. These were the laws that you had to abide by. Another phrase that's used is clean laws. These are the laws you had to abide by in order to be able to step into the sanctuary for worship. If we want to worship God with the church of God, we just show up, usually late. We just show up, we saunter in, we sit down, we chatter, we, we do whatever we do, we check our phones, we're casual, we're cavalier. They would get struck dead for that. We show up once a month. They would get struck dead for that. Okay? So it's not a guilt trip. I'm trying to show you how heavy the law is. You want to get to God by being a good person. This is what you're being held to. If you wanted to worship, you had to keep the clean, clean laws, which means this. You couldn't have been sick last week like I was. If you've had a nocturnal emission recently or a menstrual cycle, if you've eaten pork or shellfish, if you've touched a dead body even to cook, you're out. Stay away. Don't defile the house of the Lord. Then there was the civil, the civil law of Moses. This was how Israelite society was to function. You know, every society 
is built around laws. Here are some of the things that you would get the death penalty for. Having sex outside of marriage, taking God's name in vain, disrespecting your parents, breaking the Sabbath. You would get the death penalty for any of those. And then there's the moral law. These are the Ten Commandments. These are the ones that we still pursue as followers of Christ, imperfectly though it may be. You know, honor your father and mother. Don't, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet what your neighbor has. You know, those sorts of things. Love God. No false gods and so on. But here's the thing. The law as interpreted by Jesus That's what the real moral law is. That's the law that God's going to hold everybody to. If we want to jump across the canyon ourselves, God's not just going to scrutinize our behavior. He's going to scrutinize our motive. Because in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've been, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. If If you are a pious person, if you say prayers in a certain way or give money away in a certain way and, and, and even part of your motivation for doing so is so you'll be noticed by people, <clears throat> do you really want to live this way? Do you really want this kind of pressure? Because this is going to force you into to the denial of pride Or it's going to force you to hate yourself. Or it's going to force you to hate God. I don't want to live that way. Thank, thankfully, we don't have to live this way. The law says to us this, I am too much for you. If I'm all you have, if you're leaning on me to get you home in any way, shape, or form, you're going to be left at the bottom of the Grand, Grand Canyon and it's going to be your own choice. You're going to be the one who just decides to jump over the thing by yourself instead of letting me carry you over with my wings. But if you receive me, the law says, like a smelling salt, you will begin to see that my job is to awaken you to the truth that you are not enough. You are not enough. You never will be. But Jesus is, so the pressure's off. Jesus is, so the pressure's off. Everybody who's ever joined this church, their first promise of the five that they make joining the church, these are, these are Presbyterian vows, we didn't make them up. But we affirm them. The first vow is this. <clears throat> Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy do you. If your answer is no, it's you in the Grand Canyon. If the answer is yes, you're home already. You're protected already. You're on the other side already. And I know it sounds off-putting, to our natural sensibilities. There's a Harvard president whose wife, uh, this was decades ago, visited her sister 
And her sister's a devout Episcopalian, and they, they went, you know, they use the Book of Common Prayer in their, their liturgy and their worship. And, 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 and in the Book of Common Prayer during the, the, the worship service that weekend, they read these words out loud, I'm a miserable offender. And this, <coughs> this Harvard president's wife was so taken aback by that language that she, she went home and she picked up paper and a pen and started writing a letter to her sister. And the letter said, my dear, do you get down on your knees every single Sunday with all of your children and all confess your miserable offenses? Neither I nor my children will ever do that. That's what you call a symptom of a sickness called being middle class in spirit. Only the poor in spirit will ever see the kingdom of God. Only the poor in spirit. You know, John Stott, uh, great Anglican minister and New Testament scholar, said this. People cannot see the beauty of the pearl because they have no conception of the filth of the pigsty. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. It is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell with, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Remember, John Gerstner said, all you need is nothing, all you need is need. But then he followed up with this. The problem is that the one thing that most people don't have is nothing. It's our biggest problem is that we don't have nothing. But what a sigh of relief this is. For those who have been awakened to the moral ditch that is their lives. I've been a pastor since 1996 and I'm here to tell you that the people who have been most open to the riches of Christ have always been the most awakened to the bankruptcy of self, with, with zero exceptions. And the most, those who are most bored with Christ, disinterested in Christ, hostile toward Christ, are the ones who think they're good people. And you think the problem with the world is other people. Think about that in your 2020 politics. Are you more angry and disturbed about other people? Or are you more angry and disturbed about how you're dealing with this stuff? The latter is a sign of the kingdom. The former is a sign of being at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Sin fatigue is a starting point for gospel energy. Fatigued with my addictions, and that, that doesn't need to be substances. That could be addiction to work. It could be addiction to my own reputation, addiction to money, addiction to living in a certain zip code, addiction to making a name for myself, addiction to food, addiction to whatever. Fatigued from sexual sin, fatigued from greed, 
fatigue from selfishness, fatigue from emotional unavailability that I give off to other people. Look, when, when, you're, when you start to become awakened and aware that you're at or near moral bottom, when all you have left is nothing, that's when the joy comes in. That's, that's the paradox of things here. You know, the, people, the people that I've pastored over the years who've had the greatest joy, recovery people. People who are keenly aware of what it's like to be a slave to something. And somewhere along the way, they got lifted out and given a, a new opportunity at life and making restitution for the things that they've done. Addicts. Junkies, you guys, alcoholics, you guys, people who've made a train wreck of their own marriages and faced their own shame through that are the best Christians in the world. They're the most tender people in the world. They're the most self-effacing, humble people that you will ever know because they were open to hitting bottom and being told that that's where they were. That's all you need is nothing. Lastly, the law is a fruit of the promise that saves. <coughs> Paul asks the question, is the law contrary to the promise? And then he answers the question, no. No. It cannot give life, he insists. But it is a sign of life and will help us experience life once we understand that it is not there anymore to put pressure on us. See, when you let it go in its hideous form, God gives it back to you in its beautiful and life-giving form. You know, theologians talk about the law, of, uh, the law of God having three uses. The first use is what I've been belaboring in this sermon. It's a driver. It, it drives us to Christ. It leads us to Christ. Abraham looked forward uh, into the corridors of history toward the Messiah, toward the Savior who, had, who, who was promised, just as we look backward in history to the Savior who's come. The second use of the law is a mirror. It shows you some things. But most especially, it shows you what you're supposed to be. It shows you who you are made to be. Because the law of God is also a reflection of the likeness of God and the character of God, and you're made in the image of God. And so the more oriented your life is around the law, especially the Ten Commandments and love God and love, love your neighbor and all these beautiful ethical guardrails that are given to us in the scriptures about doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly and, and so on, you become who you're meant to be. You know, the, the law of God is to a human being like, like water is to a fish or like air is to an eagle. It's where you will flourish. And if you're taken out of that habitat, you, you'll become anxious. You'll, you'll become short of breath. You'll eventually die. And then the third use of the law is, is a guide. The Bible says that if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. <coughs> the new has come. And that, that, that's a sign that, that, that you've been rescued and carried over to the other side of the, the Grand Canyon, so to speak, is that that you actually have begun to start to enjoy it when God tells you what to do. 
and how to conduct your life and, 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 and what it means to surrender and to follow him and to, to lose your life so that you can find it. You know, the 119th Psalm, it's just filled with gushing love for the law of God. And then the 19th Psalm from King David, he says, the law of God, your law, Lord, is sweeter than honey. It's, it, it's delicious. What was once repulsive is now delicious to him. Why? Because he's not under its pressure anymore. It's now a path to freedom and wholeness and health and life and joy. Look up Zacchaeus in the New Testament. I don't have time to tell you the story this morning, but look him up. Look at what grace does to his concept of the law and to his concept of what it means to live well. And so now as we get ready to go to the Lord's table, the best way I can pastor you to close out this sermon is just to encourage you, look away from yourself. Just look away from yourself. It's what Tim Keller calls blessed self-forgetfulness. It's how C.S. Lewis defined humility. It's not, it's not thinking less of... It's not thinking of yourself less, it's thinking less of yourself. Or maybe it's the other way around. You get the point. <laughs> it's not having a low opinion of yourself. It's just that you don't feel preoccupied with you anymore. Because you've got a greater freedom than that. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, for every one look you tell, take at yourself, Take 10 at Jesus. Take 10 looks at Jesus. And so we'll take one look now at Jesus by standing together and we'll recite the Apostles' Creed together as the kids come in and as uh, men and women make your way to the tables to serve your fellow uh, uh, congregants of Christ Press. So table servers can make your way forward. Daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. And now uh, Pastor Kevin Twitt will come lead us in communion.